Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Hi, this is Sarah Story. I'm the executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission, and we are here live from the Mississippi Book Festival in downtown Jackson, Mississippi. And we are joined by Beverly Lowry to talk about her new book, Deer Creek Drive, A Reckoning of Memory and Murder in the Mississippi Delta. Welcome, Beverly. Thank you. Glad to be here. So glad you're here. Is this your first Mississippi Book Festival? Uh, No, I was here in 2016. Oh, great. Yeah. Was that, what book was that for? Uh, It was for Who Killed These Girls, a book about a multiple unsolved murder in Austin, which is where I live now. Well, that's great. Well, I will read that book next because I also live in Austin and in Jackson, Mississippi. That's a good combination. It's not bad. I enjoy it. (laughs) Um, So that's cool. I didn't realize it was based in Austin. Do you drive back and forth? Fly. Usually, but that's a long drive. It is. (laughs) Did you drive here? No, but I have many times, in fact. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us about this new book. It's very good. I read it. I loved it. Thank you. Um, It's it's a new book. It is not a new experience, uh, and it's not about a recent event. I grew up in Greenville, Mississippi, in the Delta, and um, uh, when I was... 10 years old, a murder occurred in Leland, which is nine miles from Greenville. Leland at that time was about 9,000 population. Greenville was more like 40. So Greenville was the county seat and the bigger town, uh, probably the second biggest town, most populous town in the state. I mean, that sounds very large compared to what it is now. Uh, yeah, yeah. Both both towns are smaller now, mm-hmm. a good bit smaller. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this murder was um, as my friend Hotting Carter the Third said, the biggest thing that ever happened in Leland, Mississippi, and therefore a, it spilled over into Greenville because the towns were kind of like almost like the town and the suburbs. Uh, when a woman the newspapers all referred to as uh, a society matron was killed in her very nice home on Deer Creek Drive, the best street in Leland, in her own home, and she was stabbed multiple times with pruning shears. And uh, that was a big enough story to get our attention because... It was uh, pretty much unthinkable. And um, the only person in the house to tell about the murder was her daughter. Uh, Idella Thompson was the uh, victim, the murdered woman, and she was 68, and her daughter Ruth, Ruth Dickens, was 43 at the time. Wow. And so um, you 
have this very interesting perspective on this story since mm-hmm. you grew up hearing about it. So what made you decide to write this book after um, all this so, time? Yeah, all right. this time. Yeah. Uh, it's good I have never tried to lie about my age because it's all out in the open now. <laughs> if I was 10 years old in 1948. But, um, you know, Sarah, I feel like the book has been waiting for me to get mm-hmm. around to writing it. It's my 11th book. And um, it this event uh, affected me. I was haunted by it. And anybody who, who was around at that time pretty much is. Anybody I've ever talked to. And even people after that, because they've heard this story, mm-hmm. and it seems unthinkable. Uh, the, the murder to begin with, and then what happened after. Right. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about you. I love this book so much because it's not only this incredibly crazy story of this murder, which, as you said, Mm -hmm. is just wild, especially for this type of town and this time in Mm -hmm. history in Mississippi. And but then also you really you interweave your own life into it and talk about your family. So um, tell us a little bit about how you made that decision, what that process was like. I I bet that was just you put a lot into it. Yeah, I want what I wanted to do. uh, I've been called a true crime writer. I don't think of myself as that. I mean, writers generally don't like to be typecast into a genre. But um, I what I really wanted to do was braid several strands of narrative uh, and the events and the situation of that time all in one book. And one was my life, which was not a society girl's life. Um, The time, um, the book goes from Jim Crow era to after the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And if you're writing about the Delta, I knew in in advance, I don't care what you're writing about, you're writing about race, and you're writing about class. And I wanted to braid all those elements into one narrative, which was a little tricky, I'd say. (laughs) But um, I'm hopeful I pulled it off. I hope so. And uh, my life was very different from Ms. Thompson and Ruth Dickens and their children, her children. But... um, It gave me a perspective, I think, of what the town was like and how what that particular event meant to not just the town, but the county and to all peoples, peoples of white race, the black race, you know, that it affected everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you do such a good job of weaving in different points of history mm-hmm. everything from what was going on with um the prison system right. what was going on in government i think you talked about at least maybe five different governors yep. that yep. that became involved <laughs> with this case which yep. is just fascinating yeah i know um it it's a it's a rich story <laughs> really and um i in fact it was I cut it and changed it and you know tried to it needed to be one narrative I didn't want because there it is a kind of memoir as the title says 
Um, but I, I didn't want my life to swamp the the whole story. Uh, the murder and the trial that occurred uh, ten minute, ten months later are the heart of the book. Mm-hmm. But from everything about that come elements of race, class, culture. Right. So, yeah, will you tell us a little bit more about uh, Ruth and Adela and their family? Yeah. Um, he's holding up and saying, I guess it's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Adela Thompson was uh, born in Mississippi, just outside the Delta. Her family came to Leland, and uh, when she was 19, she married a man named J.W. Thompson. At that point, the railroad went through Leland, so the town was very prosperous. Cotton was everything. Um, This was during... It was at the end of Reconstruction, Mm -hmm. really. And so they married, had four children, and uh, he was quite um, ambitious and smart. So he did well, and everybody who came there bought land Hmm. and planted cotton. They planted other things, too. And J.W. Thompson was smart about that. He did plant other things. But uh, people made a lot of money. I mean, it was a gamble, always, mm-hmm. as farming is. Right. But uh, he did very well and was very respected in town. And um, their third child was Ruth Thompson. And um, she married a man named John Dickens, who was, became a cotton broker. And she was... The only she was the daughter who was in the house when her mother was killed. Yeah, and the whole story is just talking about what happened after, or the majority yeah. of the story is talking about what happened after that because they couldn't figure out who actually killed Adela, and they never. I mean, we still don't really know. I Not guess really. to this day, there's <laughs> speculation, but somebody was convicted for it, right? And that was and Ruth. And so, tell us a little bit more about that, just okay. like the significance of her being convicted and actually serving time in prison, right? Okay, so to begin with. She she was covered in blood, and she had injuries of her own. And it's important to note that Idella Thompson, by the coroner's estimate, was hit, hacked 150 times. And that's, like, so... And you talk about this in the book really well, because you talk about, like, how personal that is to yeah. have pruning shears, which are right. not large. They're right. not, you know... And that's... A, uh, you know, you hold them in your hand, mm-hmm. and the blades are very short. Right. They're curved. And so, I mean, people have said to me, people from Leland, people from Greenville say, I thought it was hedge clippers. Mm-hmm. Uh, to strike somebody with hedge clippers 150 times would be almost impossible, mm-hmm. you know. They're heavy. They're heavy, and you, you need have two to hands. go straight down, mm-hmm. you know, and they're long. Mm-hmm. But with the small handheld shears, you, you'd be very close, and you could just... And the, well, the coroner said she was, speaking of Adela Thompson, 
pecked all over, which I think is is probably a pretty accurate verb to use. Mm-hmm. She was pecked. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ruth Thompson said um, it was a, and I quote her at the time, I mean, one of the things about this writing at this time uh, that I had to deal with was language, mm-hmm. because the language of today is very different. Okay. And uh, but what she said was, a Negro did it, a black man. She did not know. She's very careful to say it was somebody who didn't work for them or for neighbors. So it was some stranger, and uh, that he she had walked in on the murder had wrested the shears from him, and he had run out the back door. Um, A very long search, a very long series, a very, you know, they did some 100 interviews with black men from around the county, did traffic stops to get catch any black man, you know, in a, a truck or car, never found Anybody, And it, it is to their credit and to the credit of the posse they sent out that night on horseback, armed, that they didn't just round somebody up, which was kind of what might—wasn't kind of—it was what might have happened at that time. We, we've seen that happen in history. Yes. Many, time, many, many, many times. Yeah. And, uh, but Ruth Dickens herself, the daughter, was arrested— in uh, within a couple of months, less than about six weeks wow. of her mother's murder, which is pretty incredible. First of all, that they did it, and second of all, that's pretty quick. I, you know, unless somebody's right there, and and but um, she, the shears had been wiped clean. There was no blood on them, and um, there was no evidence that a man, a black man any man mm-hmm. had been in the house that day. Mm-hmm. So she was uh, it was sent to the grand jury first of the year, 1949. She was indicted and tried, convicted, and sent to prison for life. Wow. Unthought, unheard of. You know, a white woman, she was a society, a society person. She taught Sunday school in the Baptist church. She had two two girls, young. Had two young, young daughters. Girls, daughters. And um, it and she was the daughter, right? <laughs> you know, most of all, I mean, that was really first for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so she became kind of evil incarnate to all of us who were alive, and you know, for girls of that age, my friends and I could not talk about anything else. Could not I'm sure. Yeah, yeah imagine it right. just was. Uh, it, it took took our imaginations by surprise, mm-hmm. and said, "Okay, can you handle this?" You know, and so we were trying. <laughs> yeah, well, and then it was also so fascinating how you talk about the jury, the grand jury. Was that mm-hmm. in Greenville? Yeah, because Greenville was the county seat. So, and then you talk a lot about how, um, in retrospect, the the town gossip played way too much of a role. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, there was a magazine that uh, came out for a little while. It didn't last long, called Tragedy of the Month. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It really was. And it covered one crime 
per issue. Wow. And so it is 40 pages, and it's second issue of its existence. And I, that may be the last issue. It didn't last very long. It was, you know, it was published by Philadelphia Publication Company mm-hmm. uh, that included the newspaper, the Philadelphia Inquirer. So, you know, it, it had a respectable beginning, but it, it didn't last long. But there are pictures of the courtroom. Uh, that day and during the trial, the judge had outlawed photographs, but somehow they they came up with them. And it's like a big party, you know, mostly women. And I talked to one person who went to the trial. He was 18, and he wanted to be a lawyer. And his father said, "If you want to see what happens in a criminal trial." get yourself down there to the courthouse and he went every day and I wow. t- he's just, he's alive and I talked to him and he said women came with picnic baskets and you know iced tea or cocolas and a uh, guy with a big ice a cocoa ice cake, uh, chest was selling hot dogs and cokes uh, at lunch because nobody wanted to give up a seat. Wow. Because uh, the courthouse was completely packed, including a balcony that was for what they said that was the colored balcony. It was full, too. You mm-hmm. know, so even black people were interested. Um, it, it, was, it was huge. Yeah, and so then she goes to par- Parchment, right? Yep. Which was wild. Yeah. And then she was there for six Almost six years. uh, Well, her total imprisonment, including county jail time when she was convicted, was about six years. And I was so interested. I didn't know as much about the um, role and process that a governor can play in pardoning somebody that's been convicted. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And just it just went through so many different iterations with each governor. I know. I know. And um you know, the the first governor uh, just said, nothing's going to happen. Ruth Dickens is not going to get anything from me. Um, and then Mark White came up, and they, he said the same thing. And then as time went on, he changed his mind. People in Leland, um, but the husband of Ruth Dickens, John Dickens, never gave up on his wife uh, talking about her innocence. He never, never uh, even hesitated about that. I've often wondered if he really believed she didn't do it, Mm -hmm. you know, or he just he had two little girls to Mm -hmm. raise, and um, he was a very forceful man, Mm -hmm. and so he needed to be trusted, believed, and um, but Publicly, he stood up for her innocence and the story she tell, told. Um, and he ran petitions around time and again. And I talked to somebody who was alive at that time who said, yeah, those petitions came around, had the same names on them every time. We all signed them. Hmm. And uh, there were protests. There were also letters saying, if you, you know, from the jurors mm. who had voted to convict her and saying, you know, she was fairly tried mm-hmm. um, and we spent a long time 
thinking about this, and she needs to stay in prison. But he had some pull, uh, and he had a politician on his side to help him. And, you know, it's often said that John Dickens paid his way. I'm not even sure he did that Mm -hmm. because, um, first of all, I I don't think he needed to. Mm -hmm. I think uh, there was enough... It didn't take long for people to start thinking, well, you know, she's got kids, and she's not going to kill anybody else. (laughs) So a lot of letters said even if she did kill her mother, she needs to get out. It does nobody any good, Uh, which anybody could say about somebody in prison. What good is doing for him to stay in prison? The person's not coming back to life. Um, but eventually, John Dickens um, was successful, and she got out. She got, uh, first of all, a suspended sentence, That's right. indefinite suspended sentence, which meant um, her se- sentence wasn't wiped out. It was suspended, and she could s- remain out of prison as long as she didn't do anything else. But... If somebody complained, you know, she's a menace to the community, we're afraid of her, whatever, it could go back for a hearing and she could be sent back to prison. And that's the whim of, of the governor or the local government? who, who It controls was the governor. The, okay. It was the governor. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then the next governor came in and uh, John Dickens... Uh, petitioned him, wrote a very long letter. This was Ross Barnett asking that she be pardoned mm. um, so that then there was no, you know, she, she was out. Mm-hmm. She'd get her voting rights back and she would be as if nothing had ever happened, as if she'd never been in prison. And um, neither governor, she was never exonerated. Neither go- governor said we're letting we're doing this because we believe she's innocent, mm-hmm. um, but that she'd served her time. One said the charge should have been manslaughter, and I think he could have made a case for it, but it wasn't really up to him mm-hmm. to say that. Right. Uh, I was also so interested. So you know, you mentioned that you and your friends and the whole town had just demonized this woman. Mm-hmm. She became like the bo- the boogeyman, right. quote Absolutely. unquote. But it's a woman, and right. she's a society. So it's a very like strange sort of mm-hmm. um, image to put on someone like that, at that especially mm-hmm. at that time. But then I was so interested because you talk a lot about her two daughters and it seemed like they were still accepted to society that yeah. they were still doing i mean i'm sure it was terrible for them but they right. were still doing well can you talk a little bit more about yeah, that the dynamic? daughters did fine and, and john dickens did a good job he had a relative come built a little room for her mm-hmm. to be a kind of nanny to the girls they were um at the time uh, 10 and 14 huh. Um, and so the older girl graduated from high school with her mother still in prison. And, um, but they, and the, the community was very strong about uh, taking care of the, the girls. They had talked about the girls. And a lot of the letters that were sent to the governor say, said that we speak for the girls. They need her. So without saying, we believe she was innocent, 
that could say she needs to be home. They need their mother. Right. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit more about what it was like weaving your own story into this. Well, you know, we all have uh, heard many, many stories about our families. And one of the problems, I think, with any memoir is kind of overwhelming the narrative interest of the story with more facts and stories and stories. And my family was full of stories. And uh, so I have edited and cut and edited and cut to make sure it doesn't go. And, you know, you you really don't want to do an oh, poor me or (laughs) something that asks for more from the reader than is earned or appropriate, you know, to the story. So I I tried to be careful about that. But um, it was kind of a chaotic situation, my family. (laughs) And... uh, it was uh, tempting to tell more stories than are in the book that you read. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Did you do a lot of research? To f- Did you interview family members? What was that process yeah, like? I did, uh, I did a whole lot of uh, mm-hmm. research. And one thing I found, this is my third book that deals with a murder. The other two deal with multiple murders. One it has was solved because the uh, person who committed the murder confessed. The next one is unsolved and is the murder of four girls. And then this one is one victim and uh, conviction, but still uncertainty right. about who actually committed the murder. And um, so... I um, I forgot what you asked me. Oh, just um, the research that it took to get. Oh, right, I'm sure right. tons. So of them. all three of these, the main, the best information I had about what happened, and um, what people had to say about what happened, were trial transcripts. Oh wow! All three trials. Mm. Well, no, there were more than three, but all the cases were capital murder cases. Mm-hmm. So the death penalty was a possibility. And those trials are longer because mm-hmm. a person's life is at stake. And uh, they are full of information. I got the trial transcript from the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, mm-hmm. which has been invaluable to me. I mean, I... There were uh, there was a box of evidence from the trial. Wow. There's only one box, and I never could find out what happened hmm. to the uh, because there were many boxes. Right, and there were the there were the pruning shears, which is part of the evidence, but they never turned up. So I just don't know. But there was one box, and in it were. <laughs> were tiny things like a button from Ruth Dickens' sweater. I mean, a very small, like, baby-sized button in a little brown envelope that... And it was taped shut with cello tape, old-fashioned tape. I don't think it had been opened, Wow! you know, in, at that time, 70 years. Mm. And hairs, you know, one hair per envelope... Fingernail clippings that fingernails had been torn off, um, and 
it had not been opened, and the uh, the archivist down in the library said, "I'm not sure I can let you see this." Wow! So it went to the director, Katie Blunt, mm-hmm. and she said, "This is what this this is what we're for," mm-hmm. you know. And so I sat there holding, I mean, <laughs> a whole lock, big clot of hair that came from Idella Thompson's wow. head. So I crazy. held in my hand at the archives. So research can be, research is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was writing an earlier nonfiction book, a friend of mine who's written a number of nonfiction books said, don't get lost in the research. <laughs> yeah. And it's possible because you just don't want to stop. Well, I mean, this book, you did, you did such a great job. It's just so much, so many interesting stories and mm-hmm. bits of history that are interwoven. And I could talk about it all day. But thank you so much for being on the thank show. You, Sarah, and uh, where can people me. find you? You have a website? Uh, I do not. I should, but I don't. Okay. Maybe I will. <laughs> book, it's, it's in bookstores. It's, yeah. It's everywhere. It's a great book. Yeah, it's online. And um, I read the audio book. I got to listen to some of it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party. 